A little different this morning. I'm going to have someone else read. Dan Payne will be reading the Scripture for us. So let's give attention to God's Word. Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they daily laid at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. In his name by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, from whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for demonstrating your power. God, thank you for demonstrating your power through your Son. That Jesus, you the ascended and risen Lord, continue to be at work 
in the lives of your disciples. Jesus, thank you that you are the one who transformed the life of the lame beggar. That Jesus, you are the one who continues to transform lives today. God, you are the God who heals. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who brings the transforming power of God and you are the one who gives us the promises of God. Jesus, we look to you. And God, I ask that you would bring your times of refreshing today through Jesus. Jesus, would you continue to bring your refreshing times to your people here today. And I ask that you would bless your word and that you would enliven us as we receive from your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever thought that you really needed something and it turns out that you needed something entirely different? Have you ever been in a place where you, you thought that you you needed something, but yet you discovered that you really needed something very different than what you had originally thought. I remember when I was a young kid, I got hit by a car, and I was in shock, and I, and I ran into the house, and, I, and I, thought, I thought that I needed to hide, and I thought that I needed protection, and what I really needed was to go to the hospital. And, and my, my dad came and found me, and, and I was scared, and I was nervous. I was hiding up on the top bunk, and I was afraid because I thought I'd done something wrong by getting hit by a car. And, and he said, what are you doing? And, and he, he took me to what, what I needed. He, he, he took me to the hospital because it was really what I needed was not to hide. I didn't need protection. I needed to be healed. The, the man in our story, he thought his greatest need was money. He thought he needed alms. He thought he needed provision. And he did. But that wasn't his greatest need. That wasn't what he really needed. What he really needed was physically to be healed. He needed to be able to be restored. He needed to be transformed. He needed to be healed not only physically, but he needed healing in all of his life. He needed to be transformed in every area of his life. He thought he needed money. What he really needed was the transforming, healing power of Jesus that brought the promises of God to him. What is it that you think you want? What is it that you think you need? What is it that you think you need this morning? Now, we all have some form of needs. We all have either financial needs to some degree or physical needs or maybe relational needs. But is that really our greatest need? Scripture doesn't act as if those needs aren't important. But Scripture points us to the one who came to give us what was really needed. Scripture points us to the fact that Jesus is what we really need. That we need the transforming, healing, life-giving power of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what we really need, maybe you've come and you're more aware of your deficiencies, your weakness. Maybe you come and you're more aware of your struggles, your trials, your temptations, your feelings of sadness. And I think that God would have us receive and, and see that Jesus is the one who transforms. He has come to give new life. He's come to heal. He's come to restore. He's come to redeem all things. And I, and I love that that was really the theme throughout worship today is that soon and very soon, not only has He come to bring us new life and transform us today, but He's come to restore all things. And we're going to look in the text today and see that. We're going to see that Peter gave Him 
what he really needed. He needed the truth of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And so Peter gives this lame man the ability not only to be raised up physically, but the ability to be raised up spiritually. To receive forgiveness in times of refreshing. And, and Peter gave him the ability not only to be raised up temporarily, but to be raised up ultimately with God. And isn't that what all of us really need? We need our lives raised up and transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. What this man really needed was to be transformed in every way. He needed and he did receive an entirely new life. I think if we can get really kind of dull to this picture of a man who was crippled from birth and he was immediately healed and he was given new life physically and that was really a picture of his new life that he was receiving in Christ Jesus. So what is it that we think we really need this morning? Money or alms or physical health or healing? We have greater need than that. We need true healing we need the true transforming power of Jesus Christ that if you have placed your faith in Christ, you already have. And you can continue to experience. I love that the, the verse there says times of refreshing. So what we need is complete healing, complete forgiveness, and times of refreshing. We need God's transforming power. We need healing. We need new life. And that is just what Jesus brings. And I really think that's the main point of this passage that I believe that God has for us today is that Jesus transforms. Jesus, He transforms and He gives us new life. He gives us what we need the most. I want to encourage you if you've been doubting. Jesus has come to transform. He's come to make all things new. He's come to give new life. He transforms and He gives all the promises of God. And that's the good news that God has for us today. And this passage shows that Jesus, He continues to be at work. He wasn't just at work prior to His death. He continues to be at work after His resurrection in and through His disciples to bring about transformation and give new life. Peter and John are not the focus of this passage. Jesus is. Where is your focus today? Is it on people who fail? On circumstances? On weakness? On whatever you're lacking? Or is it on Jesus whose powerful name transforms? I think sometimes we forget where our hope is. I don't know about you, but some, I think sometimes we forget where our hope is found and that we have been given His name. And what does that mean? It means His authority, His power, the, the power to bring His life to people. That's what He has given us. He's given us new life and He's given us the ability to take His new life to other people just as John and Peter, they took the life of Christ to, to people. Peter and John had not forgotten where their hope was. Their lives had been transformed. Peter had been previously the one who denied Christ. And later on in this passage, we're going to see that Peter highlights the people's denial. And, and it's just neat to see that God has redeemed the chief denier of Christ, of His disciples. And He's the one who is now no longer denying, but He is now proclaiming, really, the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And so we find Peter and John going into the temple to pray, and they encounter this man 
who's been lame from birth. And one of the, the first truths that we're going to see from this passage is that Jesus, He transforms, He transforms through His disciples giving what they have. I love this, this very vivid picture that we have of this, this lame man from birth and either his friends or his family, they had to carry him here to the beautiful gate day by day. He was completely reliant on everyone else. He was completely crippled. He couldn't get there on his own. He couldn't provide for himself. He had to be carried there to, to rely on the kindness of others. And this expectation was that for those who entered into the temple, those who believed in God and served Him, that they would be generous for those who were disabled. And this was not a bad thing. You see, in that day, the giving of alms, it was, it was considered not only a, a duty, but it was a means of caring for people who were unable to care for themselves. And it was expected that God's people would practice this kind of care. Now, it's not the main point of the passage, but I think there's a, an application for us. How do we view people who are in need around us? whether it's financial or physical or spiritual or whatever those needs are, do we look and see the needs of the people around us and then do we realize that we have the transforming power of Jesus that we can, we can give to them because Jesus has given us his transforming power. Back in that day, Judaism took the responsibility of giving alms very seriously. It was considered an expression of compassion that God honored. And so this man, he was already looking at Peter and John and yet... He, he cried out to them, and he was asking them for alms. And, and Peter and John, they looked at him, and, and I can just imagine his face when Peter says, look at us. And so he looks up at them, and he's expecting to get something from them. He's expecting that they're going to give him money. He's not anticipating what he's really going to get. It says in verse 5, look down your Bibles with me. It says, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. This was not an act of that man's faith. This was an act of wanting to receive money. He wasn't looking to be healed. He wasn't expecting God to heal him. And then out of nowhere, this man's giving his eager attention to Peter and to John. And instead, he gets something he didn't expect at all. Peter let the man know he didn't have anything. He says, silver and gold I don't have. I don't have anything to give you materially, but then in a spirit-inspired, unplanned moment. This was not Peter planning. Peter had not previously thought, hey, you know what? There's that beggar at the gate of, of the beautiful gate. He's outside the temple courtyard, and when we come in, John, let's, let's do a miracle. Now, Peter is walking up. He's getting ready to go into the temple to pray, and then... Jesus gives him faith. And he had faith and he boldly commands this man to rise up and walk. This text, it's not about giving to meet material needs. It's not about only meeting the spiritual needs of people. It's not saying that we shouldn't give to people. Peter and John just simply didn't have anything to give to him. It would have been good if they did, but they gave him really all that they had, which was really everything. They gave him the transforming power of Jesus Christ. They gave him new life in Jesus Christ. And the healing was only an external picture of the life that they rece he received in Jesus Christ. And so for us today, do we give of what we have as his disciples? Do we give the greatest gift that we've received as disciples of Jesus Christ to those who are in need who we encounter on the way? We see that Peter was filled with faith in a way that he had seen Jesus filled with faith. And 
he must have been encouraged by the work of the Holy Spirit in and through him in the day of Pentecost. And his faith, it must have been high at this point. But it also seemed he had been given a unique gift of faith. And so he commands this man in the name of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine in that moment, I wonder if Peter was thinking, what am I saying? <laughs> and he, he looks at the man and he commands him. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Well, the guy can't do it on his own. And so what does Peter do? He reaches out to him and he, and he pulls him up by the right hand. And I love the, that picture there for us of, of what we're called to do in a similar way. We're called to reach out to people who are in need and to give them the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Now, not everyone we come in contact will be healed and we can't anticipate or expect that this is normative for today. Although God does heal and we need to cry out to Him to heal. But what this picture was really is of the true healing that Jesus brings. And in the midst of that, he cares for this man's physical needs and heals him completely. So the name of Jesus really is being demonstrated as having authority even to do work through his disciples. And Peter gives this man a new kind of alms, doesn't he? Look down at verse 7 with me, if you will. It says, And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately... I love it. Immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. So Peter takes this guy and he reaches out. And I wonder what this man experienced. This man who was crippled and lame from birth, who had no muscles in his legs that would support him. He, had, he, he wouldn't have had developed ligaments or tendons and he wouldn't have known how to walk. He would have had no ability. It would have been completely unfamiliar since birth, since his mother's womb. He was completely crippled and lame and so he had to be carried and yet Peter reaches out to this guy and immediately the guy has strength in all of his legs. Muscles grow where no muscles were. It says his feet and his ankles were made strong. Jesus' healing power transformed his his physical body. I love the just, just amazing picture that this is. This, is. this is an undeniable, miraculous work of Jesus' transforming power. You know, even if, let's suppose that this, this man had a, an illness or a crippling that could have been resolved with surgery in our modern day. Even surgery cannot make muscles grow where no muscles were. Even surgery cannot make tendons and ligaments come back. And if for some chance he had enough tendons and ligaments, there's no way that he'd immediately be able to walk. It would take months and months and months to restore, to give him the ability to do what he never learned how to do in the first place. And yet, Jesus transforms him. Why? To demonstrate he has transforming power over all things. He has transforming power over every part of life. Jesus is the giver of life. Later on, we're going to see he is the author of life. And so what is this healing demonstrating? This healing is demonstrating that Jesus is the one who gives life where no life is. Imagine this joy that this man experienced as he felt unknown sensations in his legs. Can you imagine the surprise on his face he wouldn't have known how to walk, and yet miraculously, it says not only did he walk, it says he leaped up. He leaped up, and then he stood, and he walked, and it says he was walking and leaping and praising God. You can bet he was leaping. He was saying, what am I doing? I'm walking. I don't know how to do this thing. I'm walking. And then he, he's trying stuff out, and he's leaping, and he's praising God. Why? He was experiencing the transforming power of Jesus, and he had great joy. 
This physical new life that he was receiving was a a sign or an outward representation of the new life that Peter was just going to tell him about. That Jesus brings to all of his people as Jesus takes his people by the hand and raises them up to new life. And so Peter gave this man what he had. He gave this man Jesus. He introduced this man to the transforming power of Jesus Christ and his life was forever changed. Don't ever forget, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been given Jesus, the author of life, who transforms and gives new life. The second truth that I believe that Luke wants to see, that the God wants us to see through his scripture, is that this healing is a sign of the transforming power of Jesus. Healing is a sign of the transforming power of Jesus. Healing was not the ultimate goal. Healing was so that, that Peter could have a platform to be able to share the true healing that Jesus brings, the true transforming power of Jesus. And this man immediately got it. What did he do? He made a connection here. He didn't, it doesn't say he was walking and leaping and praising Jesus of Nazareth, although I'm sure he was. It says he was walking and leaping and doing what? He was praising God. He made the immediate connection that this demonstration of this man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this demonstration of power was a sign of the transforming power of God, that Jesus is God. And so he immediately makes that connection and he sees that God is the one who made him to walk. And so he immediately begins to praise God. And I love that he says he's walking and leaping in the, in the temple courtyards there. You have to, to know that a crippled man would never have been allowed to even come into the, to the courtyard of the temple. He wouldn't have been allowed to enter in. So all of his life, not only was he crippled, he could never draw near to God. And so now God heals him so he can come near. And so he comes into the temple courtyard and he walks and he leaps and he praises God in the temple for the first time ever. And I can just imagine the joy in his heart as he thought, now I can really join in to worship with God's people because Jesus has transformed my life. He wasn't just giving him healing He gave them the ability to worship God where he never had a chance otherwise. He couldn't come into the temple courtyards. And yet it says, and all the people, look down in verse 9 in your Bibles if you will. It says, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You see, the people could not deny that a miracle had happened. This man whom they'd all seen every time they entered the temple, he was healed. And it says that they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Luke is drawing a very clear picture here for us. The people were astounded. They saw this miracle. They were in complete and total sense of wonder. Verse 12, look down your Bibles with me if you will. It says in verse 12, And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Peter, he saw the people's surprise at the miracle. 
And he asks them why they're so amazed. You're like, well, duh, Peter. <laughs> it's a pretty amazing thing. But I think there was something more behind that question of Peter's. You see, I think Peter was saying, have you been paying attention the last few months? Have you been paying attention the last few years? Did you not know that Jesus performed miracles and that he was crucified and that he was raised again? Haven't you heard? Haven't you seen? You should not be surprised that Jesus continues to be alive and is at work today. And he's in effect saying, why are you surprised? You haven't heard about Pentecost? You haven't heard that Jesus' power is still in operation? Although he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, he is still in power. He is not unseated. And so this man was healed when Peter commanded him. But Peter was under no illusion that somehow he healed the man. Peter didn't have any notion that it was somehow his power that had healed this guy. He had faith in Jesus, but he didn't work up the miracle. He wasn't like practicing miracles. Peter knew that he wasn't even the source of the faith that he had received. It was the name of Jesus and faith that came through the name of Jesus that Jesus had imparted to Peter. It was through the power, the authority of Jesus that this man was healed. And he was quick to not call attention to himself, but to point to Jesus as the source of true healing, the source of true power. And this healing was a demonstration of the transforming power of Jesus. And he was quick to explain that it's not a result of either our power or our piety. And that word for piety, it's translated everywhere else in the New Testament as godliness. So lest you think that, hey, as a Christian, if I see that people are healed when I pray for them, that must mean that somehow I'm more godly. No, it doesn't. It just means that God has, has shown his transforming power through us who are weak, flawed, frail vessels. And what a wonderful privilege we have. Is, I want to encourage you as well, if, if you are feeling, you know what, I'm not, I'm not very godly, I'm not very powerful, I don't have a lot of piety. You can trust in the same Jesus that his transforming power is, is available for us to extend to people, and it's his power that heals. It's his power that, that transforms lives. It's his power that makes all things new. And it was because God, why, did, why, did, why was this man healed? It's because God was glorifying Jesus through this man. And this healing was a sign of the transforming power of Jesus. And people, G, Peter wanted all the people to know that Jesus is the one who fulfills God's promises. And the third truth that we're going to See, and that we need to know personally this, that Jesus is the one who gives life and heals. Where is our hope? Where is your hope for life today? Where is your hope for healing, whether that's physical healing or spiritual or relational, whatever area of your life? Where is your hope? Peter was directing them that Jesus is the one who gives life. Jesus is the one who heals. And so in verse 13, Peter's intentionally pointing people back to the God of promise and saying that Jesus is the promised Christ, that he is the one who's ushered in the promises of God and himself, and he's telling them that they should have seen, that people should have known who Jesus was. And God now has glorified Jesus, the one who they rejected, the one who they tried to put down, the one who they tried to bury, God glorified. God had not just glorified Jesus this time through Peter either. He had glorified 
Jesus in countless ways and he had glorified Jesus in the resurrection and hundreds of people testified to that. And Peter says, and we too were witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. And yet instead, he tells them, instead of recognizing and testifying for Jesus as God's people, what should they have done? They should have testified. He's our Messiah. And instead, he says, instead of testifying for Jesus, who God's glorified, you denied and delivered him over to Pilate. Worse yet, think about that. As you're hearing that, they would have understood what he was saying. You see, Pilate was a pagan. Pilate was not one of God's people. He was a pagan ruler. He didn't know God. He wasn't a child of the promise. He was outside of God's promises. And yet, this blind Gentile, even this blind Gentile ruler of a pagan government, he saw that Jesus was without fault. And he says, Pilate was ready to release him. But what did you do? You denied him. And then instead of letting him go free, you asked for a murderer to be given over. It says in verse 14, but you look down your Bibles with me if you will. It says, but you denied the holy and righteous one. And that would be a phrase that would be reserved for the Messiah. It says, look down at verse 14. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Not only did they deny the holy one, a name reserved for Christ, for Jesus, for God himself, you denied the only one who'd never done any wrong and you asked for a confirmed murderer to be granted instead. And now Jesus, the healer and giver of life, attests to them that he has authority over life. Jesus has such authority and is so powerful that he gives life even through his disciples when he is not physically there. And instead of responding to the Lord of life and seeking him humbly, he tells them that they had chosen a criminal of death instead of choosing the Lord of all life. They denied the life giver. They killed Jesus. He calls him the author of life. Look in verse 14, 15, please. It says, And you killed the author of life who God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And what he's saying is that we are sure that Jesus is still alive. Although you tried to kill him, he's the author of life. He could not be killed. He was, he was killed and he was in the grave for three days and then he was raised to new life. And we're witnesses of the fact that, that Jesus is not only raised to new life, but he continues to be alive and at work today. The people had killed the one that God had affirmed and validated through the resurrection. Think about that. They would have known that this left them in a very, very bad place. They killed the one that God had affirmed and validated through, the, through raising to new life. They deny the chosen Messiah that God had confirmed through miracles and attested to in the resurrection. And now Peter tells them that Jesus, this Jesus who was operating in this man's life, is the source of the miracle that they see. Look in verse 16, if you will, for a moment. It says, in his name, by faith in his name, 
has made this man strong who you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. He's saying this is the risen Christ who is bringing healing power and who continues to transform lives. He was healed in or through the faith that is in the name, the authority, the power of Jesus Christ that he continues to have as the risen Lord. For us as Christians, where is our faith? Is it in the risen Lord? Is it in the one who was validated by God as, as being the chosen one to bring about new life? God's working through Jesus is an established fact. And, and Luke wants us to see another truth really about Jesus who transforms and gives all the promises of God. He wants us to see that God's plans through Jesus are unstoppable and undefeatable. He wants us to see that, that his plans through Jesus Christ are unstoppable and undefeatable. So look down at verse 17. It says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Now listen to this in verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. What he's saying was, even though you were ignorant... You ignorantly killed the Lord, the author of life, and, and yet God brought about what he told you he was going to bring about through all the prophets, and he fulfilled it. His plans are unstoppable even by ignorant people. Even though you wrongly killed Jesus, it was part of God's plan in order that he might be shown to be the suffering Messiah. And this ignorance that he's talking about, it's not absolving them of responsibility. This is not an ignorance that says, oh, they didn't know better. This is a, the kind of ignorance that hangs a man because of the color of his skin. It's the kind of ignorance that abuses or mistreats people because they look different. This is not an innocent ignorance. It's a guilty, willful ignorance. And it's an ignorance when they should have known better. It's a condemning ignorance. You see, the Jews in that day had opportunity to understand, but they were willfully ignorant. They could have understood and not been ignorant, but they refused to see. And because of that, because of that, they, they, they were ignorant and did not understand. And today, that same kind of ignorance continues when, when people refuse. And maybe you've been ignorant, not because you haven't had a chance, but because you've denied You've denied who Jesus is. And God would have you not be ignorant today. He would have you see that Jesus continues to be in operation. His plans are unthwarted. That he is the author of life. It tells us in Romans that, that God has demonstrated who he is. His character and his nature even in creation. And so we're without excuse and today, God's plans are no less fulfilled despite the hatred of men, despite how people might deny Christ, despite the ignorance of the world around us. God's still carrying out and fulfilling his plans, and that's, that's a great hope for us. No matter how people fail, whether they claim to be Christians or not, God's plans are not thwarted. And then Peter explains that what they had done and how they sinned against God and he explains that it's not too late for them. And he tells them you can still repent. You can still turn again to God and maybe you've been denying Christ and you've denied who he is and you've, or maybe you've been ignorant and you have not known and now today as you're hearing 
There's hope. There's great hope in, in repenting and turning back, turning away from your sin, turning to God. And he holds out the hope of the forgiveness of sins. Look down at verse 19 with me for a moment, please. It says, repent therefore and turn again. And he gives them a promise. He says, that your sins may be blotted out. And then another promise. He says, the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then he gives another promise. And he sent the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. You see, what is Luke driving at here? What is Peter trying to show us? What does God have for us to see? The other truth that we, we need to see today is that Jesus gives the promises of forgiveness and refreshing and restoration. Jesus, he gives freely the promises of forgiveness and refreshing and restoration. He's not just the God who heals. He's the one who transforms. And he gives the promises of God in forgiveness and in refreshing and in restoration. And don't we need forgiveness. Don't we need refreshing? Don't we need to be restored? He stands ready to forgive completely. It says, all who repent and turn around to him. And then he called them to repent. He says that your sins may be blotted out. And I want to stop just for a moment on that word blotted out. And I want to show you from another scripture. Look in, in Colossians 2.13. We have it here for you on the overheads. In Colossians 2.13 and 14 it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses. And that is, by the way, all of us. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Now look at the next couple words. He says, by canceling out the record of debt. That, that word for canceling, it's, it's the same word that we have in our passage for blotting out. By blotting out, by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. It says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What do we need to hear from this passage is that Jesus brings the hope of forgiveness to us. He came to cancel out the debts that stood against us. Not by getting rid of the law, but by taking these debts on himself personally. You see, back in that day when an offender was, was guilty, when they were punished, often their crimes, they would be written on a plaque or a sign and placed above the head of the offender. That's where that practice in, in early American days came from when they put somebody in the stocks and they would write the offenses and set them in front. It's because that, that was a demonstration of what they were being punished for. They were, in effect, taking the punishment for those accusations on themselves. And so I love the beautiful picture from Colossians and from our passage in Acts. When, it's when, he, when Jesus says set aside, it doesn't mean that he ignored it. It says it's set it aside doing what? Nailing it to the cross. Think about that. What, what does that mean? He set it aside from us. And then where were our fences placed? They were nailed on the cross. And instead of all of our crimes and the punishment that they deserve coming on us, it says that he set aside the legal demands from falling on us. And instead of all of our crimes, all the legal demands for punishment, they don't hang over our heads. And instead, they hung on Jesus. Instead of the record of debts that stood against us and demanded punishment, being constantly hanging over our heads, they were nailed to the cross. 
And he took the punishment for our sins and in our place, taking all the legal demands that our sins deserved on himself. And, and, and the word here, the ESV writes, is blotted out. It has the meaning of, of being washed away in every part, of being completely obliterated, of being wiped out entirely. So he, he came so that our sins might be blotted out. In ancient courts, in these days, the records of wrongdoers, they were, they were often written down on either papyrus or vellum. It's an animal skin. And, and something about that is that the ink that they used, it wouldn't actually sink into the papyrus or the vellum. It would, it would kind of sit up on the surface. And so th- there was a practice there. If somebody was absolved of crimes, they would take a sponge and they would literally blot out. They would wipe away the record of, that, of those deeds. Today we kind of have a similar thing is that when somebody's records get expunged, all the records get deleted so that the legal system can no longer make demands against you and so that no one knows that you've committed offenses. And so it's the same idea that we have here. And I love in in Numbers 5, there's a, a horrific picture of this that we need to see to understand what does this mean that our sins are blotted out. In Numbers 5, it tells of, of when a woman is accused of adultery. And there was a ceremony that, that the priest would perform. That he would, the, the man would bring his uh, accused wife before the priest. And the priest would write all the curses for going astray in adultery in a book. And he would write down all the curses that was, were come on her if what she had done was true. And then he would take that, that book or the papyrus and, and he would take water and pour it over those curses and, the, and they would run into the jar. And he would take a jar that had bitter water and it had those, those curses and then he would make the woman to drink of those curses and in doing so, as she drank of that, if she was guilty, she would take those curses physically into herself and, and then she would manifest those curses. And, and, and some of those curses were rotting limbs and barren wounds, all kinds of nasty things. And the priest would wash off the curses that he had written down and, and they would have the woman drink and if she was guilty, they would come on her. All the curses that were blotted out and washed in the water would come on her. And when it says that God blots out our sins, here's the beautiful New Testament picture of Grace. He doesn't make us drink the bitter water. He doesn't make us take the curses on ourselves. Instead, Jesus, our great high priest, he blotted out our sins so no trace or record remains. All record of our spiritual adultery has been blotted away. And he turned, God turned, and he hands this bowl of bitter water to Jesus. And then Jesus, standing in our stead, he takes this bowl of bitter curses and he drank them for us. So no curses remain for us to drink. The record is clear. It's blotted out. What a wonderful picture when it says that he came to blot out all of our sins. Christ has taken all of your sins. I love the picture in a song that we sing, he drank the bitter cup reserved for me. That's what that means. And God desires for all people to repent. So he says, why? 
listen to this, not just, not alone so that our sins can be washed away, but it says, so that times of refreshing may come. Jesus has come to bring the promises of forgiveness and refreshing. Forgiveness and refreshing. And the word for refreshing here it has the picture really of a cooling, like a refreshing wind blowing or, or cool, refreshing waters on a parched land. And don't we all need refreshing? He's come to bring times of refreshing. You know, now that it's almost summertime here in the South, I think we get a better idea of a longing for refreshing, for cooling waters. I think we can more readily relate to the idea of a need for refreshing. I remember back in my teen, teen years when I used to do work for my dad in the summertime in Virginia, and Virginia is even more humid than here. It hovers between 90 and 100% humidity all summer long. It's, it's delightful. And it, it drains all of the water out of your body. All of your pores open up, and you, you're immediately dehydrated. Five minutes of going out, wet blankets thrown on you, and you're bleh. And I'd be working outside, and he had an excavation company, and one of my jobs was to be the guy who went around the foundations of apartment buildings and, and houses that they just poured, and where they over-poured it, the concrete would kind of seep out, and I had to take a pick, because you can't get construction equipment down there, you break the foundation. I had to take a pick, and I was picking out the concrete, in 90 to 100 degree weather and 90 to 100% humidity. It's a great thing. And after I would pick out the concrete with a, sh- with a pick, then, then he would dump gravel and I put, I'd shovel gravel down and then I'd put the drain tile and put filter on top of that and shovel a foot of gravel on top of that. I, in, in those moments, that, that was, I was aware I, I needed refreshment. It was a hot, back-breaking, wearying job. And all I wanted whenever I could take a break, I didn't, I didn't want anything with soda or coffee. I just, wanted, I just wanted water. I wanted cool water. And, and, it, and when you're working outside in, in 100-degree weather here, you know what it means to, to want times of refreshing. And, and I think really it's a picture in our lives as well. At times, um, it can feel like we're in the middle of back-breaking labor, just getting through life, and that life is too hard and hot, and I'm, I'm dehydrated, I'm, I'm thirsty for God, I'm weary. Well, here's good news. Jesus came to give times of refreshing. He stands with his cooling waters. You know, in life, we can all grow weary and exhausted. We all need refreshment, these times of refreshment. And that phrase there, it's an ongoing phrase, times. Not time, but times of refreshment that he's instituted when we receive Christ, he not only refreshes us to begin with, but he gives times of refreshment when we need it most. Jesus came to bring us this this type of soul-satisfying refreshment. You know, we've been through a period in the church over the last couple of years, I think we're, we've come out of a, a period of, of really weariness where, or, or, or just dryness. And, and I believe that God wants to refresh us as his people. He wants to give us times of refreshing and I'm so excited about being in the book of Acts because I think God wants us to see him afresh and to see his transforming power and have increased faith and hope in him and to receive again times of refreshment from him. There's another picture in the New Testament when Jesus encounters a woman at the well in John 4 and and she was caught in her sin and she knew it. And Jesus tells her that he has living waters. If you drink of these waters, he says to her, you'll never thirst again. 
And, and he knew what she needed. She needed true refreshment. Look in the bottom. I think we have a few overheads. John 4, 10. Jesus tells this woman, he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Do, do you know? Do you know who it is? that you've encountered, that he's come to give you living water. And then Jesus continues on. He says, everyone, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty. Again, speaking of that well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. It's a unique turn of phrase. Will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, Jesus has come to bring us refreshment from God's presence. That's what it says in Acts. He came to bring times of refreshing. Where? From God's presence. The picture in Revelation we're going to read at the end of the sermon today. It's, it's, it's the verse that, that Gordon read this morning. And it's that picture of Jesus has come to make all things new. And, and I love another picture in Revelation of, of the streams of the river of life flow from where? From the very throne of God. And so in this passage it says He comes to give us times of refreshment from God's presence here and now. We don't have to wait until we see Him face to face. Later on John 7, Jesus explained what this refreshing water that we need to drink is. Look in John 7, 37 39. We have it for you. It says, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow, flow rivers of living water. Now this he said, listen closely, about the Spirit. So Jesus came to bring refreshing waters. He came to bring us the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who comes to bring us refreshment, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And if you believed in Jesus, you've received his spirit, and his spirit has come, been sent by Jesus from the presence of God to bring refreshment to you. And, and Jesus holds out his spirit again to you. Not only did he baptize you in his spirit to begin with when you're born again, we, we have the opportunity to be, receive continual times of filling and refreshment from the spirit. So Jesus stands and he calls out to us today through Peter, if anybody thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If you haven't turned from your sins if, and turned to God, you can now and have your sins blotted and receive refreshing living water. And here's the good news for those who have turned. If you have repented, you've been completely forgiven once and for all, never to need to be forgiven again. All of your sins have been blotted out. Jesus has drank those things and then he has come to give you refreshment, not to condemn you. And we have the Spirit as a down payment of the ultimate refreshment that we'll receive so that today we can receive refreshment from the presence of God and drink deeply of His living water until the day that we drink from the living waters that flow from the throne of God directly. But don't think that you have to wait till then. He came to bring times now of refreshment. We can be sure of this. Verse 21, look down your Bibles. It tells us that Jesus Christ will come again. How can we be sure? Well, it says in verse 21, it says, Who heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke 
by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Not only did Jesus come to bring forgiveness, all the promises of God and forgiveness and refreshing, one day he's going to restore all things. Although this life is not what it used to be, he's already come to give us refreshment, yet he's not completely restored all things. But he will one day restore all things and make everything new. And then Peter tells them that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. And, and really the final thing, one of, one of the final things we're going to see, point number five, is that, is that Jesus came to lead us into the true promised land. Why does he bring up Moses? He wants us to see that, that Jesus is the one who transforms. He transforms by bringing healing. He transforms by bringing refreshment, forgiveness, and he's going to restore all things, but Jesus also transforms because he came to lead us into the true promised land. You see, Moses was a prophet. He says, Moses prophesied about one who would be like him. Who, who, who was Moses? What did Moses do? Well, Moses was a prophet who spoke for God, wasn't he? And he told the people about God's plans, and he led the people out of Israel, out of slavery, and he led them through the wilderness and into the promised land. And, and Moses was God's instruments to bring the law by which people could live and relate to God and so Jesus now is like Moses because not only does he speak for God, he's the very word of God incarnate. Peter's saying that Moses is the one, Jesus is the one like Moses. Why? Because where Moses revealed God's plans to the law, Jesus revealed God's plans to fulfill the law through grace. Jesus came to set people free from their ultimate slavery and bondage to sin and death. Jesus has come to lead his people out of slavery and through the wilderness of this life where Moses just led them through a physical wilderness. Jesus is here. He says he'll never leave us or forsake us. He'll always be leading us through this wilderness of life and where Moses brought the law as a means to know God. The law never made it possible for God's people to have their sins blotted out forever and to come into his presence. Yet Jesus, he brings the fulfillment of the law. Where Moses brought the law, Jesus brings grace and truth. So our sins would be completely set aside. Where Moses failed in his leadership, remember, he wasn't allowed to, wasn't able to enter into the promised land. What has Jesus done? Jesus didn't fail. How do we know? He's ascended into the right hand of the throne of God. He is at the promised land already. And one day he's going to come back and restore all things and bring us into the ultimate promised land. In his first sermon, Peter explained that David, the kingship, pointed to Jesus and is fulfilled in Christ. And now he's showing not only is it, is it the kingship, but it's all the prophets. All the law points to Jesus Christ. And in verse 26, Peter explains the great privilege that these early hearers had. He says, look in verse 26, down your Bibles, please. It says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you what did he send Jesus to do? To bless you by turning everyone away of you from your wickedness. The final truth that we're going to see is that Jesus has come to bless us by turning us from wickedness. Jesus has come to bless us by turning us from wickedness. You see, God raised up Christ to the Jews first. Not alone, but first and so now he's come to us that we might be raised up from death to life. And I love the repeated picture there of raising. Peter raised up this man so that one day we will be raised up to life. And God has raised up Jesus so that our hope is in the risen Lord. And it says he sent them to bless them by turning every one of them away from their wickedness. He came to bless us as well. 
Verse 25, he says he came to bless all the families of the earth, as verse 25 says, not just blessing the Jews, but he's, he's come to, to give God's promises to all the families of the earth. He's come to bless you by turning you away from your wickedness. Maybe you feel like you're stuck in your sin. Maybe you feel like you can't stop sinning. He came to bless you by turning you away from your wickedness. Because we were all dead in sins and unable to turn ourselves, and yet Jesus came to turn us away from our wickedness. Not only did he come to enable us to repent, he came to blot out our sins, he came to refresh us, to give us this refreshing water. One day he's gonna come back to restore all things and to bring us into his kingdom forever. Go ahead and ask if you would stand for a moment and have the band come up. We'll, we'll close with a song. As they're coming up, I want to ask a few questions, and if you will, if you'll give me your attention, I have a few questions for you. Are you expecting great things of God? Who are you looking to? Where is your faith? Have you been looking at people and so you're lacking in faith? Have you been looking at people who disappoint? Or are you looking to Jesus, the one who transforms? I want us to ask ourselves, do we believe that God can do great things? Do we believe that He is the one, that Jesus is the one who transforms us and He's come to bring us times of refreshing? And are you looking to God for times of refreshing? Church, we need to be refreshed from the presence of the Lord. One day Christ will return and restore all things. Are you believing that? Are you longing for that? Do you, do you have faith that he's come to turn us away for our, from our wickedness? To so begin to, to worship, I want to read to you Revelation 21 again. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to transform and give us all the promises of God. Revelation 21.2, it's not on your overheads. It says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them and they will be his people. <coughs> God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will not exist anymore. Or mourning. Or crying. Or pain. For the former things have ceased to exist. And the one seated on the throne says, Look, I am making all things new. And then he said to me, Write it down, because these things are reliable and true. And he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and I'm the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who is thirsty... I will give water free of charge from the spring of the water of life. Let's come to him today and drink of his refreshing waters.